Christopher McCandless went out looking for adventure, the trip of a lifetime. After graduating from Emory University with a double major in history and anthropology, he decided to sell all of his personal belongings. He took that money along with his life savings and gave it all away. Over $25,000. He just gave it to charity. And then he pursued the trip of a lifetime. He went out to go and explore all that the world had to offer. He first started driving across the United States in his yellow Datsun. And then he spent some time working in a grain elevator in the Midwest. And then he paddled down the Colorado River in a canoe. And he also had a job at an Italian restaurant in Las Vegas, Nevada. But this was all leading up to his great dream of living off the land. He wanted to live off the land in the Alaskan wilderness. And so in April of 1992, he set out for Denali National Park, deep in the heart of the Alaskan wilderness. He set out with minimal camping gear, not even a compass. He had uh, no experience whatsoever in surviving with these types of conditions in this terrain, in this climate. No experience whatsoever. He was getting a ride to the trailhead. He was going to take the Stampede Trail into Denali National Park. And he got a ride from an elderly gentleman named Jim Galleon, who was an electrician from South Central Alaska. Jim Galleon was very concerned. He was worried about this endeavor that Christopher McCandless was setting out on. And he tried to dissuade him, tried to defer the trip. But Christopher McCandless wouldn't have anything of it. And he wouldn't accept any assistance either. But what he did accept was a pair of Wellington rubber boots, two tuna fish sandwiches, and a bag of corn chips. But with this, he set out for what he thought would be the adventure of a lifetime. As he thought he was living life to the fullest, he was entering into some very dire straits. Our biblical story this morning begins with the nation of Israel in some very dire straits. They are being sieged by their northern neighbors, the nation of Syria, also known as the nation of Aram. Times were very tough. They were in dire straits. This siege had lasted so long that the food supply of the Israelite people had run out. They were literally starving to death. They ran out of food and the, the prices of what food they had were so high and so inflated, it was crazy. For instance, a donkey's head was going for 80 shekels of silver, an insane amount. If you don't think that's incredible, dove droppings, dove droppings were going for five shekels of silver. And before you throw up a little bit in your mouth, dove droppings might actually refer to the inedible husks 
on a seed. And so it's still rather incredulous to think about how someone would pay five shekels of silver, an insane amount for something like this. Times were tough. The situation was dire. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 6 tells us that two women resorted to cannibalism. They boiled one of their sons and gobbled him up. Times were tough. They were in dire straits. And it didn't just affect the common folk. It went all the way up to the king. The king himself was affected by this starvation, this siege from the Syrians. And so he, as any good king, had to take it out on somebody. And who better to take it out on than Elisha, the man of God, Elisha, the prophet. He said, if Elisha's head is not chopped off by the end of the day, God strike me down. So Elisha is having this incredible threat against him, about to lose his head by the end of the day. Well, before anybody loses their head, I want to welcome you today to our summer sermon series, Nameless to Notice, in which we've explored nameless characters of the Bible who get noticed for incredible, extraordinary things that they do in the name of God. Over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the widow and her two small coins. She gives all that she has and she gets noticed for it. We looked at the tragic story of the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter, a heartrending story. And last week, Jeff showed us the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Today, we continue our series, Nameless to Notice, as we explore the story of four nameless men. Four nameless men with a skin disease who live life to the fullest, even in the most dire of straits. But before we jump into the text today of 2 Kings chapter 7, I want to introduce the characters to you. The characters of our story include, obviously, the four men with a skin disease. They, the characters include the nation of Syria and all their hostility. Our other characters include the king's right-hand man, also the king of Israel, who is on his way to go and lop off the head of the prophet Elisha. The prophet Elisha simply shrugs off this threat from the king and begins to prophesy. So if you are able to stand, let us hear the word of the Lord as we stand and read from our text this morning, chapter 7 of 2 Kings. We'll read verses 1 through 2, if you'll turn there with me. Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah, which is about seven quarts, or 1.75 gallons, of finely milled flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what Elisha is basically saying is that the prices are going to plummet and this is going to be really good news. Verse 2 says, An officer who was the king's right-hand man responded to the prophet, Look, even if the Lord made it rain, 
by opening holes in the sky, could this happen so soon? Elisha said, look, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of the food. Would you pray with me? God, would you teach us today what it means to live life to the fullest? Amen. You may be seated. I think that the first step in trying to live life to the fullest, the first step, I think, is to... Tune out the words from the negative Nancys. Tune out the words from the bitter Bettys and the pessimistic Pete's. Tune out the words from the faithless Franks. No offense, Frank. Faithless Frank might be a good name, an adequate name to describe the king's right-hand man here. Because he's got a God who's in a box. It's not that he doesn't believe in God. He has faith in a God, the God of the Israelite people, but his God is limited. His God can do some things, but not all things. His God is in a box. Is your God in a box? If your God is in a box, let me introduce you to my God. My God is not bound by space or time. My God is not limited, but yeah, my God sets limits for solar systems and galaxies and universes. My God spoke to nothing, nothing heard it, and became something. My God creates with his voice, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It becomes. My God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at all times. My God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. My God is all-loving. My God is all good. He is worthy. He is holy. He is pure. My God is the one who can take loaves of bread and fish and create enough food for a multitude. My God can empower barren women to give birth. My God can strengthen even the youngest boy to face a giant and win. My God is a God of victory, not a God of failure. My God is a God who overcomes each and every trial that he could ever face, that we could ever face. My God is the one who parts the sea before the people of God. My God is the one who goes to a valley of dry bones, dried up. And, and, and worn out. And he breathes his life into the valley of dry bones. And they stand a vast multitude. My God is the one who rescues people out of bondage. He gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute. He gives strength to the paralytic. And he allows the cripple to stand up and walk. That's my God. My God is the one who sent his son. To forgive and restore a relationship that was broken. That's my God and I want to know, do you know him? My God is the one who 
raised Jesus from the dead. That's my God. I don't know about you. But faithless Frank, he doesn't believe in a God who is able to do these things. My God is able to do all things. He is capable. He is adequate. My God is not in a box because my God is the one who invented the entire idea of geometry and the formation of a box. So God cannot be contained by that which he has himself created. Amen? Somebody say amen. Come on. That's okay. It is good news, right? I hate to say it, first service was a little bit more rowdy than you guys. But that's okay. We're just getting warmed up here, all right? We can, we can let loose a little bit, okay? But faithless Frank, he has a God who's limited. Elisha goes to him and says, Well, I don't care what you have to say, Frank, but God is going to do it. You're going to see it. But you're not even going to get a spoonful of it. And our text now turns to the four men with a skin disease. First, uh, 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 4 says, Now four men with a skin disease. Mitzorayim. Everybody say, Mitzorayim. Mitzorayim. Now, four men with a skin disease, the Mitzaorim, uh, were sitting at the entrance of the city gate. They said to one another, why are we just sitting here waiting to die? If we go into the city, we'll die of starvation. And if we stay here, we'll die. So come on, let's defect to the Syrian camp. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, well, we were going to die anyway. So these men, Mitzaurim, they they were men who had a skin disease. If you're following along in your translation, it may say something like lepers. Well, these were perhaps lepers, but this is a term that describes anyone who happened to have a skin disease. Now, if you had a skin disease, it was really bad news for you. You would be an outsider. You would be ostracized from society. You would be shunned by the vast majority and you would have to follow the Levitical law. In verse 13, we see your, the, the, uh, the things that you have to follow here. The, the person who has leprous disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head be disheveled. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. But at this particular time in the history of Israel, the people had been inhabiting the land for quite some time. And so they are living at the city gate. And here at the city gate, it's a place where people come to beg as they are doing. I want you to remember that, that they are here at the city gate because that's going to be important as we continue with our text this morning. So they're here at the city gate and they have a situation that's unfolding. They are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they realize if we sit here, we're going to die. If we go back into the city, we're going to die. But if we defect to the Syrian camp, to the enemy, 
there's a chance that we might live. Either they're going to kill us or they're going to let us live. Our chances are better. And so they risk it all. They live what's left and live their life to the fullest, trying to pursue life. They go to the enemy people. This is crazy. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But let's continue with our text in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 5-7. through 7. So they started toward the Syrian camp at dusk. When they reached the edge of the Syrian camp, there was no one there. It was a ghost town. The Lord had caused the Syrian camp to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a large army. Then they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has paid the king of the Hittites and Egypt to attack us. So they got up and fled at dusk, leaving behind their tents, horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Sometimes I believe our greatest fears turn out to be our greatest illusions. You know, because you face that fear, whatever it may be, how, however scary it may be, and you face it and you go through it and you realize that, that wasn't that bad. When we face our fears with great courage and great boldness, and most importantly, with great faith, I believe that God does something. God does something inside of us, or God does something with the situation. That's what he does here. He sends the rumbling, the the noise of an army approaching, horses and chariots, and the Syrians, they drop everything, and they run in fear. It's pretty incredible how God provides and the victory is won. Our text then continues, When the men with the skin disease reached the edge of the camp, they entered a tent and had a meal, eating the finest fruits and foods. We're talking cordon bleu, a little lobster, maybe a little filet mignon, caviar, perhaps a little bit of sushi. They also took some silver, golden clothes and went and hid it all. So they're beginning to loot the place. Then they went back and entered another tent. They looted it and went and hid what they had taken. Then they said to one another, it's not right what we're doing. This is a day to celebrate, but we haven't told anyone. They haven't told Unlike the four nameless men who stumble upon the Syrian camp that's stocked with food and provision, Christopher McCandless, in his trek into the wild, stumbled upon an old, broken-down bus. As he made his way through the snow-covered stampede trail into Denali National Park, he came across bus number 142, Fairbanks City Transit. And here it was parked in the snow. It was in the summertime in the brush, overgrown, but it was used as a shelter for hunters. And it was here that Christopher McCandless decided to call home. He chose to live off the land here in this bus. 
And as I mentioned before, he was inadequately prepared. But he did happen to have with him about 10 pounds of rice, a Remington semi-automatic rifle, a few books, one including a, a book on local plant life, and some minimal camping gear. And he thought that he would spend the next months or days foraging for food, for plants, and hunting. And he did pretty well. He ended up being able to hunt some porcupine and some squirrels and some birds. He even got a moose. But he didn't preserve it correctly. And within a few days, it spoiled and was covered with maggots. He was here at the bus for a period of 113 days. His journal entry dates 113 days. But over the period of this time, as he's all alone out here in the Alaskan wilderness, his body began to experience the effects of being out in the wilderness. The animals that he was hunting, they were all lean, and the, the food that he was gathering, mainly berries, they weren't enough to sustain a, a diet. And so he decided to pack up everything and, and head on out. He packed up everything and was making his way back, but he hit an incredible impasse. The river that he had so easily crossed in April of 1992 had grown swifter and it had grown deeper. It was impossible to cross at any point. And so he returned back to the bus, dejected. He was malnourished. He was wearing out. He was very weak. It was harder to find plants that were edible. It was harder to find creatures that he could shoot and kill and eat. It took such a, a wear on his body that every time when he would go out to look for, for plants or for hunting, he would leave an SOS sign. He needed to be evacuated out of here. The SOS sign reads, Attention, possible visitors. SOS. I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless. August. On September 6th, 1992, a local hunter found the body of Christopher McCandless. He was in his sleeping bag in the back of the bus. He weighed approximately 66 pounds. And the official cause of his death was starvation. And while this pursuit may have seemed reckless and irresponsible, he felt like he was living life to the fullest. And I think that's apparent when we see his final self-portrait. A picture of him with the, 
his right hand he's waving goodbye, and with his left hand he's holding a sign, which he wrote, I've had a happy life, and thank the Lord. Goodbye, and may God bless all. But what says it all for me is a short inscription he made as he was nearing death. Five words that I think he learned that are so vital for us to understand that that he began to understand happiness only real when shared. Happiness only real when shared. Now, the four men of our story, the four nameless men with a skin disease, as they are running through the camp, eating the fine foods and looting the place, they come upon this knowledge here. That happiness, it's only real when shared. They begin to understand that in this situation that they are enjoying life, that it's only real if it's shared. And so what did they do? They actually become what the New Testament calls euangelistoi, evangelizers, bearers, speakers, preachers of the good news as they bring this good news back to share the happiness and also to save their own skin. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9b through 11 says, If we wait until dawn, we'll be punished. So come on, let's go and inform the royal palace. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city. They told them, we entered the Syrian camp and there was no one there. We didn't even hear a man's voice, but the horses and donkeys are still tied up and the tents remain up. The gatekeepers relayed the news to the royal palace. Somebody go wake up the king and tell him this news. So the king got up in the night and said to his advisors, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we are starving. So they left the camp and hid in the field thinking, when they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and enter the city. So he thinks this is all some sort of a trap. But one of his advisors replied, pick some men and have them take five of the horses that are left in the city. You can tell that the horse population is dwindling. The people have grown even more hungry. Even if they are killed, their fate will be no different than that of all the Israelite people. We're all going to die. We've heard that before. The four nameless men with the skin disease were in the same predicament. We're going to die, so we better risk it all and try and live what's left. Let's send them out so we can know for sure what's going on. And so they send out some of the people. If you can go to the next slide for me, please. So they picked two horsemen and the king sent them to track the Syrian army. He ordered them, go and find out what's going on. So they tracked them as far as the Jordan. The road was filled with clothes and equipment that the Syrians had discarded in their haste. The scouts went back and told the king. Then the people went out and they looted. 
the Syrian camp. A seah of finely milled flour sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, just as the Lord had said they would. So the word comes to pass. The word of the Lord comes to pass. Elisha's word comes to fruition. The prices of food plummet. And the day is saved. But the day is saved by the most unlikely people. Four nameless men with a skin disease. The bottom of the barrel. Scum of the earth. The outsiders. Those who have been ostracized. They save the day. Because they they give it all. They risk everything. They go out trying to live what's left. Live life to the fullest. They set out, they find the Lord's victory, and they share the happiness. They bring the good news back home and save the Israelite people. But whatever happened to faithless Frank? Whatever happened to him? Our next verse, verse 17, continues here with what happens to him. Now the king had placed the officer who was his right-hand man at the city gate. That's the place where we first were introduced to the four men with the skin disease at the city gate. So the roles have switched. When the people rushed out, they trampled him to death in the gate. This fulfilled the prophet's word, which he had spoken when the king tried to arrest him. Our passage here in 2 Kings chapter 7. It's formed in such a way that shows some really interesting ingenuity on part of the author or authors. Because the literary structure says something extremely important. It's known in theology as a chiasmus, where the story is bookended by different themes that parallel each other and correspond to each other, and they begin to narrow in the focus on one single theme, one single message. And here's what the chiasmus is basically communicating in 2 Kings chapter 7. First, we have the right-hand man's faithlessness in verses 1 through 2a. That's paralleled, and that is corresponding in verses 16 through 20 as the right-hand man faces judgment. Then we see Elisha's prediction of relief in verse 2b. That is paralleled and corresponds to verses 11 through 15 as Elisha's prediction is fulfilled. Then, narrowing in further, we have the leper's decision in verses 3 through 5. And then in verses 7 through 10, the leper's deliverance. But at the centerpiece of our story, what do we find? The Lord's salvation. The Lord's saving activity. Living life to the fullest. It's not about taking fancy trips and vacations. Living life to the fullest is not about going on adventures to Alaska or to Africa or to Australia. Those are all great, but that's not what it means to live life to the fullest. Living life to the fullest means having the Lord's salvation at the center of your life. As we see it's the centerpiece of the story, the Lord's salvation should be the centerpiece of our lives. God's saving activity. And how do we have that? 
How do we have the Lord's saving activity at the center of our lives? Well, it starts with us laying our lives down, surrendering it all to God and saying, come into my life, show me how to live, and living for God is a life worth living. Living for God is the greatest adventure that we could have. Having the Lord's saving activity at the center of our lives is, is, more, is more adventurous than anything we could ever imagine. Because each and every day when our feet hit the ground, we have a mission. We have a task. We have a life to live that is meaningful and has great purpose. And in this purpose, in this pursuit, we begin to know God more as God knows us. And nothing compares. No great adventure could ever compare to knowing and becoming intimate and learning from God. I love what our memory verse says in Psalm 139 verses 1 through 3. Oh, Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. I want to flip the script. And I want to pursue God as God pursues me. I want to say, God... I want to examine your heart. And God, I want to know everything about you. I want to know how you move and where you move. I want to know your thoughts. I want to know what you think. I want to know everything you do. You know, God knows everything we do, everything we think, everything we dream, everything we plot. And that may be a very scary idea, or it can be a really joyous thing, knowing that God knows us and loves us so intimately. But I will be the first to admit that when I look at my life and the things that I do, there are things I do that have meaning and purpose. There's things I do that are meaningless, purposelessness. You know, I think that whenever we finish the race that God has set out for us to run, the end of our days, whenever that may be, however that may come, when we find ourselves on our deathbed, I don't think we're going to say, boy, I sure wish I spent more time on Facebook. I sure wish I... Scrolled through Instagram more. I sure wish I sent more Snapchats and tweets. I sure wish I made more money. I sure wish I bought more stuff. More cars, more houses, more clothes. I sure wish I got to watch more TV. Now I hope that we say, I'm glad I live my life to the fullest. I'm glad I risked it all for God. I'm glad I showed people and told people how much I love them. I'm glad I spent time with my family and my friends, and I'm glad I finished strong. 
I want to welcome the band back up as we close. On Friday at 4.45, Irene finished strong. Irene is the wife of Nacho. It's the mother of Yvette, mother-in-law of Edmund Garcia, stepmom of Liz, mother-in-law of Jeff Rodriguez. Irene was a faithful woman. She wore a smile and lived out the mission statement of journey better than anyone I know. Loving the world one person at a time. She was an extremely active woman. She worked out at the YMCA with my wife. She she did Zumba. And the word is now that she's doing Zumba with Jesus. Now, I didn't know that Jesus knew how to do Zumba, but Irene's going to teach him. She was a social worker for 25 years, a flight attendant for Pan Am. She just had her 80th birthday. And you never would have known it because she was so full of life, probably ready for 80 more years. And I always remember her coming up to me after sermons or whatever, giving me a big hug. She would always say the same thing. You are amazing. And then she says, I don't know how you do it. You make me cry. You make me laugh. You make me feel alive. And I'm like, well, it's just God. I don't know. But this woman was so full of life. And I believe her journey has just begun. She lived life to the fullest and lived her 80 days out. You know, Moses was 80 years old. 80 years old when he first came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And so today I believe that it is fitting to close out this sermon with a word from Moses, a a psalm that's attributed to him about living life to the fullest. And I want you to close your eyes and just hear these words and think about your life and how does this apply to me in my situation? Where am I living life to the fullest? How can I do better? Who do I need to love stronger? What do I need to do that has meaning and purpose? Psalm 90 says this, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. For you, a thousand years are a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and withered. 
We wither beneath your anger. We are overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to eighty. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear when we fly away. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear you deserve. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Oh Lord, come back to us. How long will you delay? Take pity on your servants. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so that we may sing for joy to the ends of our lives. Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. Let us, your servants, seek your work again. Let our children see your glory. And may the Lord our God show us his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. God, we come before you today asking that you make our efforts successful. And our efforts are to love this world one person at a time, to love you and to love people. We thank you, God, for the life of Irene and what she has shown us. We thank you, life, God, for the life of, of Christopher McCandless, who showed us that life is worth living and that there is beauty out there to discover, but this beauty and happiness is only real when it's shared. So, Lord, we want to share in this life with you and with the people around us as we walk forward in the life of faith, in the pursuit of, of holiness, as we are transformed more and more into your image, Lord Jesus. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to be known by you. To you, Lord, we give all praise and all honor and all glory. God, I pray that if there's someone in here today who wants to experience you for the very first time, to experience life everlasting, Jesus, you said you came to give life and life to the full. I ask they open up their heart and pray this prayer. That Jesus, you would come into my heart. Become my King of kings, my Lord of lords. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And you rose again, defeating death, our greatest enemy, once and for all. And Lord, I believe knowing this, that we have salvation, past, present, future. We have eternal life, everlasting life awaiting us. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day. But now, Lord, we realize we have a task to fulfill, work that needs to be done. So busy our hands, our feet are ready to move in the ways of love. As we love your people, as we love you, Send us out, Lord, we pray. Holy Spirit, guide us, fill our lives so that we may go and be world changers as you, Lord, have changed our world. To you be all glory and all honor in the church and in our lives and all God's people said, Amen.